card. Bullets, shells and shrapnel, and a hellhound on my track. When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. Thanks for joining us. For those new to the podcast, Danny and I are two leftist combat veterans who we served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we take the military and veteran stories of the day and try to look at them with a a little more context. Today is a headline day where Danny and I pluck recent news articles out of the news and try to add a, a bit of contrast and experience. And some of them are big, huge stories, stories that have been ongoing for months or even years. And some of them are, are very recent developments. But we try to go through the news as much as we can and, and comb out the, the stuff that we really think people need to know about. So today we're going to be discussing uh, recent news that President Bush is receiving an award from the National Constitution Center, a horrific choice but one that we should dig through a bit. We're going to discuss President Trump's failure to acknowledge the survivors of sexual assault uh, following the confirmation of newly confirmed Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and how President Trump's failure to acknowledge those survivors, how it makes life harder for survivors that are still serving in the military. But uh, more to come on that. Uh, We briefly discussed the immense damage to Tyndall Air Force Base by Hurricane Michael and how the Trump's failure, uh, Trump administration's failure to acknowledge and confront climate change is only going to make climate change overall astronomically worse. There are a few other short headlines. Uh, for those that have listened to the podcast before, um, you'll hear kind of a new way. We're, we're trying to jump through um, several shorter topics in a, in a quicker fashion, and um, I'd love some feedback if you, if you guys have any um, if you, if you like it, if you didn't like it, uh, what, whatever you have to say. Um, my main headline for the day is the ongoing war in Yemen and the official response to that, uh, the humanitarian disaster that America has created there, along with discussing recent developments with the Trump administration's response and how utterly unacceptable it is. Danny today is going to be covering the recent horrific attack in Afghanistan involving the senior U.S. commander there along with uh, several other high-ranking Afghan officials that were killed in the attack, and what this incredibly terrifying sign tells us about the war in Afghanistan. Danny is also going to discuss the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist who had just become a legal U.S. resident in the last year, who fled his country for his own safety, um, and... In returning to the Saudi embassy in Istanbul, he was killed on the grounds there in Istanbul. So we'll be talking about that in a bit more detail. All right, let's do this. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We've got a whole shit ton of news to share with you guys, so let's get to it. Um, 
I'm going to take a minute here and run through a whole bunch of headlines because Danny and I have been super busy with a ton of other things, but we want you guys to be aware of some things that are sticking out to us. First and foremost is uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court that came through this last week. Um, the, the comment I wanted to make about that for our purposes is has to do with the public comments that the president has made about sexual assault and about not believing survivors and something that really hasn't been pieced apart with that so much is how that could possibly lead to something like undue command influence in an investigation for troops in the service. But in some ways, even worse than that, the president is telling our armed forces that this is acceptable, that his d denial of that these things are happening to these women, whether they're connected to the president or not, is really setting things back. And the military has worked very, very hard trying to be supportive of sexual assault survivors, certainly not perfectly, but I think that's something that needs to be considered when we talk about Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, President Bush is receiving an award for his commitment to veterans from the National Constitution Center. Um, I won't go into that too much detail. Uh, eyes left. Those guys have just done a brand new episode on that specific detail. And in a word, President Bush fucked them. But I, I want to read the the announcement from the National Constitution Center's website so you understand a little bit about this. George W. Bush served as 43rd President of the United States, and Laura Bush served as First Lady from 2001 to 2009. They are founders of the George W. Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, Texas, which is home to the George W. Bush Institute, a nonpartisan pu public policy and leadership development center focusing on solving today's most pre pressing challenges. The Military Service Initiative within the Bush Institute honors the service and sacrifice of all post-9-11 veterans by ensuring they and their families make successful transitions to civilian life, specific, uh, specifically in addressing the challenges of employment and overcoming the invisible wounds of war. Um, and in 2017, President Bush also painted and penned Portraits of Courage, a commander-in-chief's tribute to America's warriors, which helped dispel the stigma of invisible wounds of war and tell the human stories of those who courageously volunteer for our country. So nothing about this award is anything that he did in his time as president. Nothing. It's just this stupid, fucked-up center that... And every every president gets a center or a library or something. So, let, let me jump in there and express my utter disapproval of this award. Um, I know we both agree on this. The award for President Bush is completely out of context. This man paints lovely portraits of veterans, especially fallen veterans. He's getting an award because he paints in his free time. Utterly detached from the fact that those boys and those women and men died based on the illegal and ill-advised wars that President Bush started. These were wars of choice. One could argue that the initial counter-terror invasion of Afghanistan was a just war. One could argue that, okay? I think it's a, it's a very nuanced question as to whether it was a, a good strategy, but you can argue something important. Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. Fact. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Fact. 
we still invaded and toppled the government of a sovereign country. 4,000-plus Americans died in that illegal, ill-advised war. President Bush has that blood on his hands. The only thing he's done for veterans is create more of them. Painting their pictures does not obviate him of that long-term responsibility for the deaths of 4,000 American soldiers and maybe close to a million Iraqis, depending on the count you believe. This award is a sham. It is a bar bipartisan charade. Everyone was making great comments, you know, at the McCain funeral when, like, uh, Michelle Obama was kind of uh, friendly with George W. Bush, and we were supposed to forget that Bush was the worst president in living memory. And for all of the obtuse comments of Trump, Trump has yet to do anything on the scale of disastrous that George W. Bush did. The man is arguably a war criminal. Absolutely. The, the international community sees him that way. Only Americans do not. The international community, because of his torture policies, we're talking Abu Ghraib, we're talking extraordinary rendition, we're talking about illegal invasions of sovereign states. Even if Saddam was an asshole, and he was, we had no right to invade his country. We had no right to occupy his country, and we had no right to destroy a society, and that's what we did. Uh, I'm. This is abhorrent, and uh, I don't have anything else to say about it except for the listeners, do not forget the George W. Bush presidency. Those eight years may have done more to damage our ostensible republic and to damage America's good name in the world than perhaps any other eight-year presidency, at least since the 20th century. Absolutely. I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about writing something about this this topic. I'm not sure how, what direction I'm going to go in, but yeah, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts I'd like to get out. No, I, one last thing on this. Um, About Face, which is an organization we're both uh, members of, used to be called Iraq Veterans Against the War, is is planning some direct action um, and protests surrounding this uh, ceremony. Unfortunately, I'll still be on active duty, so I won't be able to take part um, because, believe it or not, the Uniform Code of Military Justice protects not only the current president but also past presidents from contemptuous activity. So I can give my opinion like I just did in an unofficial capacity. It doesn't speak for the DOD, but I, I can't actively um, uh, pursue political uh, opinions as long as I'm on active duty. But uh, sure enough, when I'm not any anymore, which should be uh, any uh, month now, um, you can bet that I'll be on the uh, I'll be on the streets to fight these sort of things. Yeah, looking looking forward to hearing about it, and I'm sure we'll we'll advertise what's happening on the podcast as it gets closer. So next thing, uh, we have hurricane damage to DOD facilities. Um, it, something that just uh, trying to go through this real fast. So, um, the majority of all of our DOD facilities, Army bases, Air Force bases, they all sit within close range to our coastlines. And so as climate change continues to worsen, the effects are going to be first felt at the coasts, and DOD certainly sits right in that bloodbath. Um, 
Tyndall Air Force Base was heavily damaged in Hurricane Michael. However, it seems at this point that the hangars, while they were destroyed themselves, seemed to have protected around the 20, the 50, there was 15 F-22 Raptors there that were, I assume they were deadlined and unable to fly at the time. Um, and this is exceptionally lucky for the Air Force, as Secretary of Defense Mattis has ordered a standing memorandum that all the branches are to increase the mission-capable rates of four of the nation's premier fighter aircraft, the F-22, the F-35, the F-18, and the F-16, to 80% during the federal fiscal year that began October 1st. And so that means that at any given time, only 20% of this fleet, of those four aircraft that I mentioned, can be unusable, which is, which is insane. I, I, it, I don't know how they're ever going to be able to, to do anything like that. Um, and then recently there was an, uh, an article in the Oregonian, which is Portland's here, their, their big newspaper talking about president Trump and, uh, secretary of the interior, Ryan Zinke, suggesting that they use West coast DOD facilities to ship coal overseas, given that most Western states like Oregon have become unwilling to use civilian shipyards because of the environmental damage caused by using coal and by transporting the coal. Um, it's this uh, move by Trump is specifically part of the Trump administration's desire for the U.S. to establish, quote, energy dominance in the world. Um, he only specified one specific site for natural gas, and it's uh, the former ADAC Naval Air Facility in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, which he suggested could receive fuel by barge from the North Slope. Um, it's been closed since 1997, about 300 people live in that uh, town. It's actually the wet, most westernmost community in the United States. It's out on that way, a little tail end there for uh, for Alaska. Well, can I jump in there for a second? Go for um, it. I, I want to b- uh, kind of back up for a second, uh, although I think the stories are related, and talk about climate change. Um, we have a climate denier as president. He said it's a Chinese hoax. He continues to stand by that. We have one of our two major parties, the Republican Party, within which a vast majority of Republican citizens as well as representatives in Congress don't believe in climate change. Um, Climate change is the greatest threat to the United States of America, more so than terrorism. Terrorism is a blip on the radar. The threat from terrorism is far from existential, but the threat of climate change is, of course, existential. It's something that our children and grandchildren are going to live with um, if they live. I want to just talk about DOD as it relates to climate change. So the Environmental Protection Agency and like the Center for Disease Control and a bunch of other Trump uh, Trump era agencies of the federal government are actually banned from using the term climate change, um, which is rather Orwellian, of course, right? Um, and yet the DOD, to its credit, believes in climate change. And has written several very powerful reports about the dangers of climate change and how it will affect military policy, how, how the military will be um, forced to deal with the refugee crises and the, from the rising waters. For example, Bangladesh will be underwater in 20 years. Well, Bangladesh has like 80 million people. Okay, It's a big country. Not geographically big, but it's highly densely populated. Some of the poorest people in the world. They're going to be underwater. Where are they going to go? Well, they're going to go to Pakistan. Okay, they're going to go to India. They're going to go to Burma. So expect a major refugee crisis and all the stuff that comes with it. But let's talk just in a, in, in a more simple 
sense about the DOD facilities. I think it was Hurricane uh, Irma or Irina, I can't remember which one, a few years back. When it hit Florida, three major military bases were evacuated. One was an Air Force base I can't remember the name of. The other was uh, the Miami-based Southcom Command, which is the command uh, that covers all military operations in Latin America. Pretty important, right? But they all had to go home. They all had to leave the area, basically shutting down operations in South America. And Central Command in Tampa, CENTCOM, was also evacuated. Now, these storms are going to be ever more recurrent. And eventually, these storms are going to just destroy much of coastal Florida. Central Command is running seven wars right now, okay? Uh, or at least six. I, I guess AFRICOM is running one. And the idea that the headquarters, the four-star headquarters of Central Command could potentially be evacuated again for a storm at a key crisis moment is a genuine threat to our national security. So forget about the fact that Bangladesh is going to be underwater. Forget about the fact that New York City is going to be underwater and all the refugee and instability crises and eventual violence that's going to mean for the military. Just on the most basic terms – some of our key commands are going to be underwater in our lifetime, yours and mine. I mean, our kids, they're going to live in a whole different world. Yeah. And so the irresponsibility of climate denial shocks me because the American people and American policymakers, let's be honest, they are veritably obsessed with national security. Too much, I think. I mean, I think they're alarmist, right? But the one aspect of national security, the only one that's existential – is climate change, and yet we deny that. And again, we're through the looking glass, Alice. I mean, this is insane, and, th and that's all I want to say about that. But my God, the, the obtuseness of, of, of our executive to just deny this, it's, it, it's inexcusable and it's unfathomable. What also puts in real clear contrast the value he places on military personnel's lives because the first people to – be injured or killed by any of this is going to be people in uniform because not only, like you said, being close to the coast, but they're also going to be doing humanitarian operations. So the worse that it is, the worse that they have to, the water they have to wade through to help people. So yeah, it really, it doesn't seem like they have any concept of the value of, of military personnel's life in the least. Uh, absolutely not. It's a charade. The whole idea that like soldiers are on a pedestal and everyone loves them, it's a charade because if they really love them, then they would worry about the things that are most threatening to them. And climate change is, of course, the existential threat. Absolutely. So next thing in the shoot today is a uh, last month I posted on the on the podcast feed a, uh, a report from Code Pink on the military industrial complex. And it breaks down which companies are selling the most, to which repressive regimes they sell. This particular report focused on uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Egypt, which are easily the worst ones in the world. Um, I'm not going to go through a, a bunch of it, but I wanted to just demonstrate the kind of information there. I suggest to everybody, take take a few minutes, go and read this. Yes, it's it's. I think it's like 70 or 80 pages, but you learn a lot about what American companies are willing to ignore when it comes to warfare deaths, and war crimes. Um, so here, here's, here's the example I found, is that the U.S., we can continue to sell cluster munitions um, that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are believed to be using them in Yemen, 
because um, they found debris left behind that demonstrates that they're using. However, these clusters don't always explode. And so people can come behind and walk by them and it hurts or kills anybody in their range. Our country is one of a handful that didn't sign the ban on these horrifying weapons. Um, and add to that with our removal from the, uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty um, that George W. Bush ended our involvement with during the early days of his admin. So, all right, just a little bit here about this cluster, this cluster stuff. The remains of M26 cluster munitions made by Lockheed Martin were found at the site of two missile strikes in Yemen, one in Haja in April 2015 and another in Sadaa in July 2015. Cluster munitions are designed to open up in midair to release hundreds of submunitions to kill and wound people over a large area. Unexploded submunitions can keep killing and maiming innocent civilians for years. They've been outlawed in an international treaty signed by 108 countries, but not the United States. Lockheed's M26 MLRS rocket has a range of 20 miles and is armed with 644 submunitions. Here's the real horrifying thing. The uh, United States General Accounting Office, the GAO, found that the dud rate of the M77 munitions, meaning how many of them did not go off, can be as high as 23% with each rocket leaving up to 148 unexploded bomblets behind to kill and maim people. Now, though Lockheed Martin has not sold these kind of rockets to Saudi Arabia, it did sell them to Bahrain, Egypt, and the UAE, but none of them has accepted responsibility for these two attacks on civilians. You know... What strikes me is, once again, the United States is acting like a rogue state. We don't sign on to international treaties that everyone else signs on to. 161 countries have ratified the the uh, ban on landmines, for example. President Clinton, a liberal, quote-unquote, wouldn't sign it, wouldn't ratify it. Barack Obama promised on the campaign that he would, and then he got cold feet when the military told him, no, 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 we need these. So 161 countries signed, but we didn't. We have a history of thumbing our nose at the international community, at international norms and laws. We've pulled out of the Kyoto Accords on climate change under George W. Bush. We pulled out of Paris on under the watch of President Donald Trump. We refused to recognize the International Criminal Court or the ICC. I mean – we, we pulled out of the Iran deal and everyone else stayed in it. I mean, at time and time again, we, we are the rogue state. We refuse to play by international law or international norms. And, and what you're talking about here, the cluster meters, is just another example of that. And then when we get attacked, when people protest against us in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world, when global polls t tell us, credible global polls, tell us time and time and again that the rest of the world thinks the United States – not North Korea, but the United States is the greatest threat to world peace. We're always so surprised. We're like, why do they hate us? That's our favorite question. Why do they hate us? Well, I can think of a few reasons. And, 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 and what you're saying in this headline is just one. It's our utter hypocrisy that they hate. Yeah, no, like, like you said, we, we have become a rogue state no different, than, no different than Pakistan, no different than Egypt, no different than Saudi Arabia. It, 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 it's, yeah, it, it's just horrifying. And the three states that you just mentioned as rogue states are all American allies who we sell arms to. We do. We do. Which is, you know, just adds to it. 
It's like it's like an onion, man. Every time you peel away a layer, there's just more fucking fucked up shit there. Yeah, I know. And I, I'm I, losing my mind, man. I'll be I'll be honest. I'm fucking losing my mind with all this stuff. So next headline in the shoot, we have an article from Wired talking about U.S. weapon systems being highly vulnerable to cyber attacks. Um, and they're talking about all different kinds of things. We use a lot of electronics, even ordinary troops, between Blue Force tracker computers in, in trucks, um, electronic uh, stuff to keep us protected from IEDs as guys are driving around in convoys, um, not to mention Air Force stuff, drones. I mean, it, 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 the list goes on, but I... I, I didn't. I wanted to go through this one in more detail, but it's simply that a group of kids they got together a group of kids, and I don't think any of their systems lasted more than an hour. Some of them were were broken in minutes. Some of them the kids were able to break into it in minutes. So, I will link that one in the uh, show notes. Please definitely read through it. Uh, next one is an article called "The CIA Democrats" from the World Socialist website. It talks about the military-industrial complex connections of a whole bunch of Democrats that are running for office this fall. Now, some of them are uh, former active duty. Some of them are former CIA, former NSA. There's, there's a very, very wide selection, but they do all come from the national security state in one way or another. I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't vote for anybody simply based on that alone, but it is really worth looking through someone's resume and seeing what they're going to do. These days, the Democrats do everything the Republicans want them to do in terms of, uh, in terms of our military. So if, if anyone is already in that spot, already leaning that way, assume they're going to say yes, assume they're going to want to get in on the crowd of that. Um, and the last thing for today is next episode, Danny and I are going to bring in some info on our reps and our senators. Um, and we want to know the, the defense bill uh, the, the final for, for fiscal year 2019 finally got approved. And they mentioned on the, I listened to a podcast called the political fallout shelter, which is run by military times. And they mentioned that now all these representatives and all these Congress, all these senators are going to go home and they're going to take a, a victory lap for this gigantic DOD budget. And that's the kind of thing we need to watch out for. So. Yeah. And it's a great point. Uh, look, the days of, being politically apathetic are behind us. Everyone has to be political. If you think of yourself as apolitical, that that's not acceptable anymore. I know it's frustrating. I know it's easy to just tune out and forget about it, but we have to hold our congressmen and our senators accountable because the Supreme Court is in the hands of the enemy for at least a generation. The presidency is in the hands of a fairly extreme right-wing president. And the Congress is in the hands of radical Republicans. So really the only one of those things we can influence before 2020 is the Congress. And and so we have to know which representatives are in the pocket of the military industrial complex and we need to call them out. We need to call their offices. We need to write letters. We need to protest. And then we need to vote them out if they are in the pocket of the militarist state. And so – um, me and Henry are going to uh, take the lead on that, and we're going to give you a report, good, bad, and ugly, on our representatives, and then uh, encourage you guys to do that kind of research as well. Yep, sounds great. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. 
But truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know. Somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of of building our rewards, so if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. I'd like to take a moment here and thank by name our four honorary producers that are supporting us on Patreon. And they are Matthew Ho, Will Arens, Gage Counts, and Fahim Shirazi. Anyone who contributes $10 or more on Patreon each month will be listed as an honorary producer. To everyone else who contributes on Patreon, thank you so much as well. Your response has been really wonderful. Now, back to the podcast. Well, oh, I have been very busy this week, Henry. Um, I wrote five articles this Holy week, which shit. is the most, most I've ever written in, in a week. And uh, it's not because I um, necessarily need the cash, although I do. And it's not because I'm trying to uh, show off because I'm not. It's because so much is happening in the world. And we have to talk. We, we, we are obligated obliged to talk about Saudi Arabia, about the murder and dismemberment mafia style of a dissident journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. I am appalled by two things. The first thing I'm appalled by is the brazenness of MBS, the crown prince, and his Islamo-fascist government the brazenness of this murder to kill a Washington Post correspondent in the consulate 
of Saudi Arabia in Istanbul, Turkey. So not even on not even on the actual Saudi soil. The brazenness of that attack it shows how confident they are that they can get away with anything, and they're not wrong because I mean they behead women for sorcery and we don't say shit. So you know they figure America will back us no matter what we do, and they have every reason to believe that because the recent history since 1945 when we made our devil's bargain with them, has shown that to be the case. But you know what the second thing that bothers me about this story is? I'm upset, and this is going to transition to your next piece. I am appalled that it took this incident to bring Saudi Arabia under the microscope. What do I mean by that? Saudi Arabia, as we're going to talk next, is starving and bombing Yemen into oblivion. Saudi Arabia has been beheading dissidents, adulterous women, allegedly adulterous women, women who practice, quote, witchcraft, whatever the fuck that means. And they've been doing this for years. Saudi Arabia is the ultimate rogue state. Saudi Arabia is the last – one of the last absolute monarchies on the planet. It is a – it is a, a complete fundamentalist theocracy. And yet there are, quote, allies. There are, quote, partners. We don't even pretend to value human rights anymore. We, do, we, we, we don't have a single leg to stand on. As long as we back the Israelis and the Saudis, we can never again say the phrase U.S. values and norms or human rights because it's bullshit. So here's my, my take on it. It's a cynical take, but it's accurate, I think. The only reason this story is making big news is because Khashoggi, God rest his soul, was one of them. What do I mean by that? He was part of the media. He was one of their boys. Fuck the Yemeni children starving to death. No one gives a shit about brown kids in Yemen. But one of their own got killed. One of the media's own got killed. That's why this is a story. That's why this is headline news. So am I glad that it's under the microscope? Am I glad that we're reevaluating our relationship with Saudi Arabia? Of course I am. But I'm appalled that it took this incident, which is relatively minor, not for Khashoggi and his family, but relatively minor when compared to the other crimes, decades-long crimes of the Saudis. Um, it shows the just how bereft – of nuance and context the media is they only care about their own and that's why this is a story there's been so many killed journalists lately i mean not in not specifically in the middle east although that does happen a lot but uh you know south america um the recent deaths in central america that uh, ukrainian ukrainian or bulgarian journalist that uh i think russia had killed recently it is a horrifying time to be a journalist and especially ones that goes, goes into those places. And to me, it seems to me, it seems very disingenuous on their part that, that this was, was the thing. Again, it connected all the right pieces for anybody wanting to start criticizing Saudi Arabia at that point and needing an excuse. But journalists have been under siege for a long, long, long time. The, them, them finally waking up to it and, and, uh, now connecting it to the horror of Saudi Arabia, that's just fucking laziness on their part. It, 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 it's, it's, yeah. Um, but the, but the, the, the killing itself, uh, two planes 
landed in Istanbul. They were only on the ground for eight hours, brought their own doctor with them. Yeah, they came at 3.31 in the morning, by the way. Like who? And they said they were tourists. What, what tourists land at 3.31 and stay for eight hours? Sorry, it's, go ahead. Exactly. No, no. no. And, and that's it, is that the thinking of, at this from a military planning standpoint, this entire thing must have taken a lot of time on their part to plan, to be able to get personnel in and out that quickly. And so, and so the question I have is, I saw in, I saw in the media that Khashoggi was, you know, he wasn't a fan of Saudi Arabia, but he also wasn't the greatest critic of them. Was it instead because he criticized President Trump? Because I, 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 I know that... I know that they they get really really protective about you know uh, leaders that are are absolutely in their favor. So yeah, you know I, I mean that, uh, I don't even want to speculate on that because I have you know only limited immunity since Trump is my commander in chief. So yeah, I can't yeah, yeah. I can't say that I um, believe that to be true. I'm horrified by the fact that it's even a possibility though. Yeah. I'm horrified by the fact that we even have to speculate on this. And I think we do have to speculate on it. Um, this was a disturbing story. Saudi Arabia is ISIS light. That's what they are. ISIS cuts off heads. Saudis cut off heads. ISIS fucking stones women to death for adultery. Saudi Arabia stones women to death for adultery. I mean, the only difference between ISIS and Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia, well, there are ISIS. Yep. You know, there are boys. So, you know, all this bullshit about we're fighting an existential war against theocracy and ISIS is like Islamo-fascist. It's all bullshit. Because if the war was really about stamping out theocracy in the Middle East, then our first target would be the Saudis. Saudis the Saudis, along with the Pakistanis, essentially created the Taliban, which killed thousands of American soldiers and, of course – Hundreds of thousands of Afghans. It, it's a joke, man. It's a joke. And I am going to ring the alarm bell on Saudi Arabia until I'm blue in the face. I will die probably still writing about Saudi Arabia because it's a topic I will never, ever give up on. Uh, there's there's no end of stuff, man. It, it just keeps continuing. But that is – that breaking that relationship and that nexus is key for our country backing up from the war state. If we can't, if that those kind of things are still there, if we as capitalists can still sell bombs and guns and and find their 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 demeanor acceptable, then our war state is going to continue as bad as it is, and probably even get worse. Totally agree. So now, uh, in 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 direct connection to Saudi fucking Arabia, we're going to talk about Yemen. Uh, this is a piece uh, by Rajan Menon at Tom Dispatch. Um, just while I'm thinking about it, he did a really great segment on the Scott Horton show recently. If you guys want to know more about this in detail, please listen to that episode. For years now, a relentless Saudi air campaign, quite literally fueled by the United States military, has hit endless civilian targets using American smart bombs and missiles without a peep of protest or complaint from Washington. Only a highly publicized, completely over-the-top slaughter what we were just speaking about recently forced the Pentagon to finally do a little mild finger wagging. On August 7th, an airstrike hit a school bus with a laser guided bomb made by Lockheed Martin in northern Yemen, killing 51 people, 40 of them school children. 79 others were wounded, including 56 children. Soon after, a UN Security Council appointed group of ex experts issued a report 
detailing numerous other egregious attacks on Yemeni civilians, including people attending weddings and funerals. Perhaps the worst among them uh, killed 137 people and wounded 695 others at a funeral in Sana'a, Yemen's capital, this last April. So first, let's talk about the ongoing blockade. I want to say, what was it, beginning of 2015 when that started, Danny, when the blockade first began? And it, it was already contributing to incredible food shortages and super high prices that ordinary Yemenis can't pay. Given let me it, pause there, and let me, let me just pause there and say, even before the blockade, Yemen imported 80% of its food. So that gives you an idea of why the blockade is so awful. Go ahead. That was literally the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> See, that's the thing. We should we should share notes ahead of time. We we're so we're so our mind melding is is amazing. Go ahead. We are. Um, so it cut the number of ships that were docking in the Houthi controlled port of uh, Hadeda from 129 between January and August 2014 to 21 ships in the same month of 2017. Now, 18 million Yemenis, an incredible 80% of its population, must rely on emergency food aid to survive. Then, perhaps worst of all, you have Yemen's ongoing cholera epidemic, exacerbated by destroyed sewage infrastructure throughout the Saudi aerial bombing campaign, along with shit tons of rotting garbage, which is unable to be collected because of the war. All of this have made Yemen's chlorella epidemic the worst on record easily surpassing the 800,000 cases Haiti had between 2010 and 2017. According to a World Health Organization report between April 2017 and July 2018, there were more than 1.1 million chlorella cases there. At least 2,300 people have died from the disease, most of them children. It is believed to be the worst outbreak of chlorella since statistics began to be compiled in 1949. Um, it only took Yemen a year, uh, excuse me, half a year to break Haiti's record. And what, pray tell, was the finger wagging? What was the finger wagging that Rajan was, was, was mentioning in the beginning of his piece? What did members of our own government do with news of innocent children being killed in a bus bombing? Well, we had Sekdef Mattis tell the media that the Saudis' blank check on Yemen wasn't a blank check after all. And then he and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo collectively certified that the Saudis are, in fact, attempting to mitigate civilian casualties without a shred of fucking evidence to demonstrate that. They both sign their names on this blank check and just go right back to their normal bullshit. And keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is slotted to receive a lot of the equipment needed to continue this war by itself. The, uh, this is a little bit from that Code Pink report again. This is the equipment going to Saudi Arabia just from Lockheed Martin. Four new littoral combat ships designed to work in shallow waters, which will enable the Saudis to keep their blockade up for who knows how long. Two KC-130J refueling planes that they now rely on us to use. 20 new C-130 transport planes. 14 MH-60R Seahawk helicopters. And 30 UH-60 Chinook helicopters. And again, like I said, that's just one defense contractor. There's still no evidence that the Houthis are being armed uh, by, by Iran, given the naval blockade, because given how landlocked Yemen is, it would be the only real way to get weapons into Yemen. 
they just can't do it. If the most basic provisions of life are unable to make it into port, how would weapons sent from Iran? Also, Iran is currently making a huge investment in their militias and forces currently deployed in Syria. So, go ahead, Danny. You know, Yemen is the is probably the story of our times. I, I, I think um, the catastrophe in Yemen is what historians will remember about this period. Um, you wouldn't know it from watching the mainstream media because they're too busy reporting on fucking Kanye West in the Oval Office um, and Trump calling a fucking porn star that he slept with horse face. Can I just pause there and say, could you imagine any other president getting away with sleeping with a porn star, paying her off and then insulting her looks? I mean, imagine if Obama did that. He'd have been impeached. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so Yemen is making the news a little bit of late because of the Khashoggi thing and because Saudi Arabia is on the microscope. For the most part, Yemen's been unreported in the mainstream news. I think uh, there was like uh, – I heard something about there was like 413 references to Stormy Daniels before there was a single one on Yemen. And on MSNBC, which is like the quote liberal network, there's no such thing as liberal news anymore, of course. Um, this – this disaster is worse than it even sounds. I mean, re- casualties are underreported. I mean, the official count is only 16,000 dead mm-hmm. civilians, but most estimates put it over 50,000. Yep. Like you said, 80% of the country is on the brink of famine, and um, we're not even sure how many children have already starved to death, but it's, it's in the thousands. Um, it will be in the millions if yep. something doesn't change. Um, the United States likes to believe that it, this is not our war. We don't have any troops on the ground for the most part. Um, our planes aren't at, uh, doing the bombing. But we are just as complicit as the Saudis. Because while the United States likes to believe that this is a Saudi war and not an American war, that's not what the Yemenis think. No. The Yemeni people blame us. And every time a bomb kills a wedding party or a school, they take a photo of the tail fin and it says, whatever Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, Boeing, what, what one of it's it, it, it's I mean it's in English. The the yep. fucking writing and the and the, the nomenclature is in English. It's like we we don't even hide the fact that these are American bombs. Look, if it's an American bomb, then it's Americans' responsibility. But we don't make anything in this country anymore. Industry, steel, all those things. That shit is gone. It's all overseas. It's all sweatshop labor. The Rust Belt is dying. But you know what we do still make? Guns. We're the number one arms dealer in the world. And one of the reasons Trump has been unwilling to do anything more than a slap on the wrist of Saudi Arabia over this Khashoggi thing or the Yemen war is because he just made a $110 billion arms deal. Mm -hmm. It it drives the U.S. economy. Now, it's not making – the people of America any richer. I mean, it's making corporate executives richer. But seriously, I mean, one of the like the last American domestic industry besides fracking and the destruction of the environment is guns and bombs and weapons of war. We are complicit, as I've said in recent articles. We are guilty, and God help us. That's what I want to say because our souls are dying in the deserts and mountains of Yemen. The uh, one more point I wanted to make on this, and it was that like, like, like what you're saying here, Danny, is that uh, 
this we we began this a long time ago. It's only it's only recently that it's gotten horrifying enough that the media might pay attention to it. But if we we go back say to 2011, Barack Obama chose to arm uh, the Saleh government back then during the height of the Arab Spring in a deal to secure our drone war in, in, uh, against al-Qaeda there in Yemen. What, at what point are we going to understand that attempting to arm different groups and point them at each other or point them at the groups we want them to fight just make, turns the world into, into a fucking bloody mess? Because that's, that's all I see here. Um, I did see mention that Obama had uh, stated that the Iranians told the Houthis not to attack the capital and that if they did go after Riyadh, that Saudi Arabia would start a war from them. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and as far as I know so far, every missile that the Houthis had fired in the direction of Saudi Arabia has either missed or been shot down. And given the just under 50% hit rate of most missile defense, defense systems that we sell, although that's not the rate that we sell them, we tell people, um, it's good that the Houthis have really terrible weapons. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's horrifying, Danny. I don't, I don't, I, I fucking run out of words. I, I really don't. Oh, and uh, one, one little last thing here. It was a new report from ProPublica, and I'm going to cover this next podcast, talking about how an American defense contractor hired special forces veterans to participate in an assassination program in Yemen, hunting Yemeni politicians and clergy. Um, it was uh, Democracy Now! covered it a little bit earlier this week. So if you guys Google it, I'll, uh, I'll link that one article in there. But I'm going to cover that in depth next time. So the last headline for us today is mine, and it's on the madness that went down in Afghanistan on Thursday, yesterday, from when we're recording. There was an attack, another insider attack, which is when an Afghan, quote, ally turns his gun on his trainers or on Americans in general. And it occurred in Kandahar, the province that I served in, which is one of the more Wild West-like provinces of Afghanistan. And what made this attack interesting was the 103rd such insider attack that resulted in fatalities. There's been, of course, many more that did not result in fatality. It, what made this one interesting is that uh, General Miller, who's like the 17th commander of the war, because that's how long we've been there, um, the current U.S. top commander in Afghanistan, he was there. Okay, He had actually just left, but he, he was very close to this attack. Um, two American soldiers were wounded in the crossfire. It was the bodyguards of the provincial governor of Kandahar who turned on uh, on, the, on the provincial governor, and uh, he was killed along with two other Afghan senior officials, one of whom was the security or I mean, the intelligence chief for the province. And the other one was a guy named General Abdul Razik, who is the police chief, but really the basic warlord of Kandahar. He, he, he runs all security forces uh, for the Afghan government in Kandahar. He was killed as well. Um, this attack tells us two things. Um, one, it tells us that the Taliban can strike when and where they want. The fact that they got so close to killing the senior commander in, in, in the United States tells us that they have excellent intelligence. tells us they have spies everywhere. And it tells us that no part of Afghanistan is safe. Not Kabul, where there's been more bombs and suicide bombers than ever. 
in the capital, not in the district center of Kandahar, obviously. Nowhere. Nowhere is safe. Now, the Taliban officially contests 44 percent of Afghanistan's districts, which is the highest rate since the war started. But this shows that even in the other 56 percent of the country, the Taliban can strike at will. So the war is over, guys. We lost. doesn't matter how long we stay. Whether we stay or go, the war is over. The Afghan government will fall. I mean, it may be able to hold on to the northern rim of the country where the Uzbeks and the Tajiks live, but um, southern and eastern Afghanistan will fall to the Taliban. This is a fact, okay? That's the first thing it tells us. The second thing it tells us is that American, quote, partners in Afghanistan are highly, highly flawed individuals. Um, I knew General Razik, believe it or not. Um, I met him in 2011 when he first came to Kandahar to take over as the police chief. Razik was very effective, unlike most of the timid Afghans that we trained. Razik was fearless and he was brutal. He would take his personal police sort of force. He had this like special forces kind of elite group that like was personally loyal to him and he would just run right through the Taliban country and send them on the run. They were terrified of him. I mean, they hate him. I'm afraid he lived this long. He's already survived a few assassination attempts, so this one is the one that finally got him. So Razik was very popular with the American chain of command, okay, with my bosses and their bosses and their bosses because he actually fought. He was actually effective, and he actually killed and captured, well, killed Taliban. He executed prisoners. I had words with Razik once about his human rights abuses. And he dismissed me because I was just a lowly captain and he was like the warlord of Kandahar. Um, I had tried to warn him that his heart, his uh, heavy handed tactics would actually turn the people against us. The thing to remember about Razik is that General Razik is a proven war criminal. Like so many of our allies, like so many of our partners in the Middle East and specifically in Afghanistan, he was a warlord. Harper's Magazine, even before he came to Kandahar, had written a long piece speculating about his execution of prisoners, men, women, and children in Spin Boldak, which was the province he was in before he came to Kandahar, or the district he was in before he came to Kandahar. What does this tell us? It tells us that even the best American allies in Afghanistan are highly flawed. This is a messy, messy war. Most of our partners on the ground are corrupt. They are drug dealers. They are murderers. They're monsters. Razik was effective, but Razik was a monster. So not only is the war over militarily because we lost, but from the start, our partners were utterly flawed. We never had legitimacy there. We never had an Afghan government that was holding to quote-unquote American values. The cynicism of our campaign in Afghanistan is appalling. When I read this story, I remembered looking in his eyes, in Razik's eyes, and they were dark, dead, shark eyes. He was a killer. And sometimes you need a killer to win a war. But you don't need someone who kills women and children or executes prisoners. 
So I'm sorry for his death. Like I'm sorry for the death of any human being. But this attack, this insider attack, the 103rd such insider attack that resulted in fatalities, to me is indicative of the absurdity of our war in Afghanistan, America's longest war. It's very, very demoralizing for deployed troops when there are insider attacks. And, and not that it shouldn't be for any reason, but I remember in 04 when I was there and we had uh, the Chow Hall bombings that happened. And we felt like there was no safe place. You know, and, and granted, should there, should there be safety in that way? Should there be safety in a war? But, you know, we, we couldn't go to our barracks, couldn't go to the chow hall without feeling that we were under attack. And maybe that's the greater point, is that we, we brought our, our, you know, quote-unquote benevolent forces to try to go and work on this thing, but we didn't find any benevolent forces. So it, 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 it just goes to show that, that history rewriting only works so far. We can only rewrite certain narratives before it just, we just look around and yeah, you're full of shit. This is, this is just horrifying. You can't prove to me that this is anything other than a complete disaster, which the war in Afghanistan is. Anytime anybody mentions any kind of success in Afghanistan, I want to throw up a little bit, personal or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I actually was contacted by several of my publishers yesterday um, as soon as the news dropped of all this madness in Afghanistan because everybody wanted my take. And so I, I, I banged out an article very, very quickly, but I think it's a good one. It'll come out next week. I'm going to write a preview of the article um, on the Fortress on a Hill uh, webpage, so check that out. But essentially what I, – I entitled the article Quagmire – and I think the subtitle is, you know, what the ki- what the killing of Razik tells us about the Afghan war. And I think what it tells us is that the entire thing was an immoral crusade and it was unwinnable and it is a quagmire and it's not worth a single more American dead. I cry whenever I read stories, and I mean that, about Americans being killed in that wasteful war. Because I know as a commander who's done it eight times – how hard it is to tell a family that their son or daughter is dead. And I know that I could never, with any honesty, explain to them what exactly their son or daughter died for. And like I've said in many articles and many times in this podcast, the day where that becomes true is the day that the war ought to end. When you can no longer... Look someone in the eyes and explain what precisely their son or daughter died for. It's time to get out. Because you know what? Dirty little secret, they died for nothing. Except their buddies. But that's not good enough. We owe these families more than that. Absolutely. Absolutely we fucking do. And we also and and the and the the shitty pipe dream that our guns and our bombs can get carried overseas and we're going to do good, which isn't true. It's it, it over and over and over. We've demonstrated it. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at FortressOnAHill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon, Spotify—you name it. Almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. 
skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget that. We'll see you next time.